0: When we started to see states really manipulating and taking advantage of the emergency powers bestowed upon them because of COVID to close reproductive health care centers outright, um, we started to see increases in the number of people that were traveling.
1: This is Wine, Women & Revolution with your host, Heather Warburton. And welcome to Wine Women and Revolution. I'm your host Heather Warburton, coming at you here on Create Your Future Productions. You can find us online at www.yourfuturecreator.com. Follow us on all the social medias and get us wherever you get your podcasts from. Today I have a friend of the show joining me, first time on my new network here. But you know I always had her on a couple of times. I think at least twice, if not three times. And she was the host when we did our wine or our weed women and wellness event out at the Cherry Hill Women's Center. Welcome back to the show, Roxanne Sataki.
0: Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for having me here today.
1: Yeah, it's been a while since uh, we've talked. There's a lot has happened since last (laughs) we talked about what was going on with reproductive freedom in this country. We have a new president, we have a new Supreme Court, all kinds Mm. of stuff is going on. We have had a global pandemic, I think, since the last time I spoke to you. So (laughs) things have changed quite a bit. How's everybody doing out at the Women's Center first?
0: We're hanging in there, you know, we have been deemed essential workers, you know, there has been no change in the need um, or urgency of the need for abortion care. So we've been hanging in there, um, definitely been been tough, um, but we have a tough group of, of folks um, that tend to dig their heels in to the work when it gets difficult. Um, very, very proud to work with um, everybody at the Cherry Hill Women's Center.
1: Yeah, I would also like to attest to the fact that everyone that I've met there is amazing people. They really are. Like, I've never seen such a great group of people in the healthcare field, but everyone I've met there, I've absolutely loved. So, you've got a great group there.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I think, you know, all healthcare workers have had to make a lot of adjustments with the pandemic, but we're uniquely suited because. Since we provide abortion care, we are always pivoting (laughs) based on all of the, you know, different laws and and things that are kind of constantly changing in our world, which I know we'll talk a bunch about today.
1: Yeah, well, I guess we have to start off with how did COVID affect the care you were able to provide locally and nationally? Because you do work with some centers outside of New Jersey.
0: Right. So the Cherry Hill Women's Center is one of our affiliated centers, um, I work as the director of community engagement and work with all of the women's centers. So we have five clinics in four states um, and our advocacy center, which is where all of our phone calls come in and we work on logistics and financial planning um, for people who are coming in for their appointments. We have our Hartford GYN Center in Connecticut, and then we have our Delaware County and Philadelphia Women's Centers in P.A., We have our Cherry Hill Women's Center, of course, in Southern New Jersey, and then we actually have our Atlanta Women's Center in Georgia. And so I think the first couple of weeks through the pandemic, we were really figuring out where we were going to be able to continue to provide services and where we weren't. And then also, what was the legal landscape in the states surrounding us? Um, It's not uncommon, you know, wasn't uncommon before the pandemic for people to need to travel to access care because most people don't live in a community where there's an abortion provider readily available to them. But when we started to see states really manipulating and taking advantage of the emergency powers bestowed upon them because of COVID to close reproductive health care centers outright, um, we started to see increases in the number of people that were traveling. Um, so we saw this a lot in um, in the south. Um, but you know, the way that transportation changed um, because of what was gonna be safe for people really impacted kind of where those folks wound up seeking care. Um, For example, we um, took care of a patient at our Hartford uh, clinic in Connecticut who traveled from Texas. um, Because there was, yeah, um, a clinic that was within a six hour drive, you know, of her when all of the clinics were shuttered in Texas, but it was actually quicker and more affordable for her to get on an airplane to Connecticut because at that time, if you can remember back in March and April, there was no one on any flights and the price of flights dropped, you know, under $50. Um, And of course she had, you know, some family and friends that she could stay with in Connecticut. She was familiar with the area. Um, So the kind of you know, logistical Olympics that we saw people having to figure out was huge. And so there was a big impact on our advocacy center, which I mentioned that helps people to figure out what is the transportation going to look like? Um, What is your time off of work, you know, potentially going to look like? Did you lose your job because of the pandemic and no longer have health insurance? Are your children out of school and now you no longer have childcare? And so our, our patients were facing a lot and still are facing a lot more obstacles Um, That we needed to help them to navigate, and then in the clinics themselves, um, there was determining whether or not we could continue to provide services. Which, eventually, across the United States, you know, it was across the board determined: pregnancy termination is a time-sensitive essential healthcare service. Can't stand in the way of that. Um, You know, all those clinics had, or all of those states had decided to keep, you know, their clinics closed since March you know, there would have been a lot of people who never would have been able to access their abortions potentially. Um, So we're still not on a timeline where we we see a real end to this yet, right? And so I think that um, ultimately, you know, Abortion providers faced a lot of unique challenges, um, but a lot of it was really just very similar to what other medical providers had to figure out: how do you run a high-volume ambulatory surgical center, which is what Cherry Hill Women's Center exists as, while still maintaining social distance <laughs> for all of um, you know all of your patients? And you know, before there was mask mandates and people were um, required to wear masks across the board, how do we make sure that all of the patients that are presenting to us have the proper PPE, um, and we still have enough, you know, PPE to maintain for our um, our staff. I think the other kind of unique thing for abortion providers, though, <laughs> is that no one else has had um, the unfortunate um, experience of having to deal with is protesters right through the pandemic. So um, at no time did we see... Um, them stop showing up outside of the facility. Actually, um, in the early pandemic, we saw an increase in the number of protesters. Um, Just because like they were the, home
1: from work, so they decided to go protest your clinic? Um,
0: they were home from church. They were told that they were not allowed to assemble in the ways that they were used to. And I think there was a lot of frustration about that. And I think there was a lot of frustration about the fact that abortion was deemed um, essential healthcare services outright in New Jersey, right? Um, and so we were the target at the end of the day um, from these anti-abortion um, activists. And there's a lot of overlap um, in the communities of that are opposed to abortion, that are opposed to masking, and that are opposed to vaccinations. Um, and so as these conversations are ramping up about you know the availability of the vaccine and about public health. Um, you know, considerations that we make to protect one another, um, we know that we are going to see more activity and more hostility coming from, um, from those groups.
1: Now, at your clinic, did you do at-home managed abortions before this with the, you know, I guess some sort of, was it through, via telemedicine
0: or um, providing the medications? Yeah, so we provide um, clinical abortion care, which is abortion care services that we do in office um, in the first and second trimester. And then through 11 weeks, we offer medication abortions, which are um, administered by the patient at home um, and the abortion itself happens at home. And so um, those services um both involve some pre-screenings, which traditionally have happened mostly in the clinic, and then also some follow-up that have traditionally happened in the clinic. And what we've seen due to the pandemic um, is more offices working toward um, transitioning more of the services that they can to telemedicine. For a lot of folks at first that looked like um, the reproductive health services that they might offer in addition to abortion services, like, uh, GYN visits or, um, you know, examinations, um, conversations around birth control. Um, but state by state, um, there are a lot of regulations about what services have to be provided in clinic, um, which ultimately do and can stand in the way of, um, a hundred percent, like at home medication abortion. There also are some restrictions at the federal level, um, the FDA's REMS ruling um, around medication abortion that ruled that the medication abortion, um, mifepristone is a medication that needs to be administered directly by a physician, um, which means you can't mail it, it had to be handed to someone. So there actually was a challenge to that case um, through the pandemic that's been upheld. And so there currently is an injunction um, that says that, that that medication doesn't need to be physically handed to someone. Oh, if it's okay. a medication <laughs> that they can take at home um, safely, you know, that then it is a medication that can be mailed. And so um, what we are doing and what other providers are doing is um, working on adjusting protocols and evaluating the other um, regulatory and legislative barriers that may stand in the way of a, of a completely like what they call no abortion, um, which can help to reduce um, the travel, but also that in-person need to be in the clinic.
1: Right. Yeah. So maybe that's something that will come out of COVID is some, loosening of some of those restrictions
0: on a permanent basis, not just an emergency basis. Absolutely. And and just improving the, the structures for telemedicine across the board. Um, and also, you know, coverage and parity for those services. Because I think that although there were a lot of providers who would have liked to offer that, you know, across the board orally on, um, it wasn't until COVID that there were requirements that insurers um, pay, right, for for these services that are still being um, facilitated or offered by um, providers, even if they are remote. I think it's seen now as, um, it's given the place in medical care.
1: Yeah, I I think that's, you know, good. Maybe that is something good that'll come out of it. And I wanted to talk about one more good thing, too, as far as reproductive freedom, before we jump into some of the other back into the challenges again, is mm. Argentina, a, a country that just legalized
0: abortion for the first time. That's that's big. Absolutely. And the activists that have been pushing for legalization of abortion care um, throughout Southern America and in Argentina have been at this fight for years. And so I think that it really can't be um, understated how they have just persisted through this pandemic, right? Like we've all been facing um, new and unique challenges, um, but they stayed, you know, on social media, they were in the streets really demanding um, the end to criminalization um, of abortion services in their country and they won. Um, and so that is something that I think people around the world can <laughs> can join in not only celebrating um, the win for for Argentina but what that means for the kind of global landscape of abortion access. And I, I hope that what we see is the tide turning um, you know, in places like Southern America, where there still is a lot of criminalization um, of abortion.
1: Yeah, I think it maybe is a sign that it's globally going to become more acceptable and understood that it's reproductive care is health care for
0: anyone who needs it. <laughs> right. And that reproductive health care services You know, ultimately it's healthcare and healthcare is a human right, but that it's tied, you know, so deeply to our human autonomy and our dignity. Um, And I think we're really seeing a new generation of people standing up for that in a way that... um, you know, we we didn't in the past and kind of a breaking down of the stigma that has kept people quiet for so long. Um, really just throwing that, throwing the respectability politics out the window um, because it's a matter of, you know, human dignity. It's a matter of survival. Um, and it's a matter of human rights. And I think tying it into this kind of broader framework um, you know, people are starting to see the issue a little bit differently, not as siloed off. Um, Yeah,
1: the true intersectionality. And we're talking about equity work here, right? Mm -hmm. Like traditionally, pregnancy has been a way of controlling people that are able to become pregnant. And if we were talking about equity across the board, then reproductive freedom is part of that equity.
0: Right. And there's gender equity. There's also, you know, the economic implications of a two tiered medical system, because regardless of where you live, if you have the means, you're going to be able to access these services. If they are criminalized, you will find a physician, you know, who can see you in a clandestine setting and it can be safe if you can pay or ultimately you can travel. Um And so, you know, that's true in countries where abortion is illegal. It also is true in countries like the United States where abortion is legal, but is often inaccessible um, and for many completely inaccessible.
1: Yeah, I did kind of want to bring it back to the United States now and talk about, I said at this opening of the show, we have a very different makeup of the Supreme Court now. Someone who is openly anti-Roe was just added and you know i think that may be scaring some people so maybe we should talk a little bit about a what that might mean for new jersey if there are any cases heading to the supreme court currently that people need to keep their eye on and what it could mean for people
0: yeah i think the appointment of two justices in that four year term was probably the most devastating um or well, sorry, it was up there with the most devastating impacts of um, the previous, I guess current, soon to be previous. Previous as of this recording as of when as people the hearing this, they'll be the gone. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: We'll be gone. Um yeah, yeah. Looking back, I mean that's gonna have implications for reproductive healthcare for decades, but not just reproductive healthcare, right? Like a whole myriad of of human rights and equity issues. Um, but right now there are honestly dozens of cases <laughs> in the pipeline. Um that could that are headed, you know, towards the Supreme Court, um, that you know could challenge the protections that we have from Roe. They could also, um, and more likely, continue to chip away at access to abortion care services. Um, and so, you know, in the most recent ruling over the summer. Um, In June first, E Medical, um, which was almost a identical case to um, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, which was just heard a few years ago, um, out of Texas, Um, basically the court ruled not to um, overturn precedent, and so I think that even with you know a new anti-abortion justice. A lot of folks are saying that it's unlikely that they will go full throttle and and overturn that set precedent. But, you know, we know that even with the protections of Roe, abortion is not accessible to to most people in the United States. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to improve that accessibility. I think, number one, by um, reducing the economic barriers, you know, that persist. Um, I think the new administration would do well to be the first to end the Hyde Amendment, um, which restricts any federal funding, including funding for the Medicaid program for abortion care services. Um, I think that would do more (laughs) in one fell swoop than, um, than we could see done through the courts. Has he given any
1: indication that he might be open to that? I mean, you know, I'm very skeptical of any Democrat as well as any Republican. (laughs) So has he given any indication that he might do that? Or is that just kind of... Actually,
0: only like in the last year, year and a half, um, he previously held his support for the Hyde Amendment. um, And it wasn't until he was challenged, um, you know, and pressured to really stand... um, you know, and and talk about why he opposed the, the Hyde Amendment, which really disproportionately impacts low income people and people of color, um, that he reversed his <laughs> stance. Um, and so I think that, you know, we just had the first hearing, um, the first hearing on, on the Hyde Amendment where um, leaders of the reproductive justice movement spoke to um, you know, really why this is a racist, classist policy. Um, and I think that we are in a place now where we're closer than ever to to seeing that turned around and seeing that ended. Um, so there are some good things on the horizon. The, the cases that we see kind of bubbling up in the courts have a lot of different um, <sighs> focuses. Um, there are ones that are kind of focused on the types of procedures um, that can be performed. So there have been challenges to, um, they call D and E's or dilation and evacuation, which is the the most commonly type, uh, commonly utilized uh, method of abortion in second trimester. Um, And so it's kind of a way to get at abortion um, access, pre-viability without utilizing a gestational line by actually targeting the method itself. Um, And I think we'll see more kind of like, tricky types of cases like that, that will continue to chip and chip and chip away at access to where we'll say, well, we have Roe, we have the protections of Roe. But, you know, if you don't have a clinic in your community, if you can't pay to have those services, um, than what, you know, ultimately do we really have?
1: Right. They may not overturn Roe directly, but every little bit they chip away makes it less likely someone's going to be able to access the health care that they absolutely need in a timely fashion. Right. Yep. So what would happen, though, if Roe were overturned here in New Jersey and in other
0: states across the country? Yeah, so um, there's there's a handful of maps out there that kind of detail the threat level. (laughs) Um, There are states in the United States that have things called trigger bans on the books. Those states have laws that are enshrined in their statute that say when and if the, the protections of Roe were to fall, abortion will be illegal, criminalized in our state outright. They're ready to go. Ready to pull the trigger, right? Um, in anticipation of the fall of Roe, and you know, in the in the last you know several years, we've seen um, the tide turning. Where, you know, in advance of a more potential likelihood of Roe actually falling, um, states are attempting to codify the protections of Roe. Um, and so, just very recently, um, we saw Massachusetts pass the Roe Act, and. Um, which included a codification of the protections of Roe versus Wade and also worked to remove some restrictions um, that were burdensome in their state to help to improve access. So overall a really good bill. Um, so we have a kind of a balancing act of some states that are, are doing proactive work that want to make sure that regardless of, of where the federal protections are, you know, abortion will be accessible in their state. And we have states that are doing the exact opposite. Um, and we have some that fall somewhere in the middle, right, um, that maybe wouldn't work to completely outlaw abortion, but have already put into place um, restrictions that, that harm um, folks and limit access significantly, just like our, our neighbors in Pennsylvania. Um, so our clinic in Cherry Hill, I always like to point out is only about 15 minutes away from our clinic in Philadelphia, um, but it's like worlds away when it comes to access. They have a 24 hour waiting period. They have a judicial bypass requirement for minors. Um, they have a restriction on Medicaid coverage. They have a whole slew of laws um, regulating abortion providers differently than other medical professionals. Um, and so I think that um, as the legal protections fall, um, we'll see certain states taking um, taking a lot of advantage of that. And, you know, potentially um, more, you know, unfortunately it's more of the same, right? Because there, there are states where abortion is still illegal. They, they're still legal technically. They still have maybe one provider, right? And still is hundreds of miles away. The gestation that they can provide to is, is limited. And so those folks, you know, some people can access abortion in those states, but many often are already needing um, to figure out um, travel plans and logistics to leave the state. And so there's a potential that we might see more of that.
1: So what's going on in the great nation of New Jersey?
0: Yes, New Jersey has always been um, really a leader when it comes to reproductive health care. I mentioned that during the pandemic, um, Governor Murphy did state outright that a termination of pregnancy was a time sensitive and essential healthcare care services, making us one of the only states that really um, affirmatively named that, which was important and, and really meaningful. Um, and also during the pandemic, we took steps to introduce proactive legislation um, in the Reproductive Freedom Act, which is S3030A4848, um, which I have to mention are just beautiful bill numbers. <laughs> um, but that bill, I think, couldn't have come really at a better time, um, as the pandemic has had both a direct and indirect Impact on folks accessing reproductive health services and people providing reproductive health services. Right, we've seen, um, as I mentioned, more people who are out of work, who are no longer insured, who have less financial resources available to them, um, and less practical resources as far as transportation and childcare. Um, but what we've also seen is, you know, an illumination of the disparities in our existing healthcare system, and. Um, that existed well before right the pandemic um, but people are really seeing them now in a different light as our healthcare systems have been stretched thin and as our you know um, communities have been stretched so thin and so the reproductive freedom act um was introduced in october we're continuing to work to advance that legislation now um it has not been heard yet in committee we're working really hard to have it heard in the health committee um, we want it to be introduced. We want it to get a fair hearing. Um, and we have some really great organizations that are part of the Thrive New Jersey coalition that are working hard um, to advocate in uh, support of, of that legislation. Um, and if you'd like, I can tell you a little bit about kind of the the core pieces of what the bill does. Yeah,
1: tell me a little bit about it. <laughs> and tell me who's on that healthcare committee that people need to bother and say, hey,
0: why haven't you done this yet? <laughs> <laughs> right. And actually, we can make that really, really easy for folks. Um, you can go to ReproductiveFreedomActNJ.org. And you can sign up there and you'll get email alerts of, like, who's the target right now, <laughs> right? Um, I'm knocking on wood that by the time this comes out, we will have had the, the health committee hearing. Um, but what we're doing is right at the top of that website, you'll see Take Action and um, you'll be... Uh, you'll have the opportunity to contact not only your legislators, um, but also target legislators um, that are, you know, we've determined will help us to to be able to move the bill, um, you know, through the process that it needs to go through. Um, I think at any time it is going to be helpful just for people to be hearing that there are... Um, you know new jersey residents that do support access to abortion care services and so just reaching out um in you know any capacity to your immediate lawmakers um to say you support abortion access is huge like just that a tweet a qu- quick letter um but for some of the more strategic stuff i would say definitely visit reproductivefreedomactnewjersey.org um, and it'll take you to um to the people that you need to be talking to more specifically about um, our asks, and it'll also sign you up so that you can continue to get updates um, about the bill as it progresses. There's actually is a really meaty bill. Um, it does a lot, and so we expect it to go through a couple of committees. Um, and, you know, we, <laughs> we know that this is not an issue um, that the New Jersey legislature really has had to speak about much in the last 20 years we did a lot of work um, to reinstate family planning funding which is great Um, but when it comes to the issue of abortion new jersey has been like we said you know historically a leader we've been in a really good place um what this bill does is going to make sure that these mounting threats aren't going to impact new jersey residents when it comes to um accessing services and then also that the gaps in access that persist right now when it comes to um to accessing affordable care in people's communities are going to be closed so that we're not really leaving anyone behind. Um, and so the the Reproductive Freedom Act, the first kind of pillar, we've been talking about it as having like four pillars, is that it codifies the right to reproductive healthcare services and to decision-making and autonomy for all people who could become pregnant, including is women, trans men, gender non-conforming people, it's actually a really beautiful broad statement, much broader than the, um, the rights that are codified by Roe. So some people will say it codifies Roe. It's actually a really broad reproductive rights codification. But we didn't want a bill that just addressed rights um, without addressing access, because like I've said a number of times, right? the rights are nothing if we can't really access the care. Um, theoretical rights don't do anyone any good. And so the ways that the bill will affect um, or impact access, um, one is by uh, eliminating the financial barriers that persist in New Jersey. And so we talked a little bit about the Hyde Amendment. Um, New Jersey has for many, many years um, opted to utilize state funds to ensure that the Hyde Amendment um, doesn't impact people in our state on the Medicaid program. Um, we don't carve out abortion care services unlike any other medical care and say this is something that you don't deserve or don't have access to. Everyone can access the full range of reproductive health services, regardless um, if they have or if they have um, insurance from the state through the Medicaid program. But what we know is that there are a lot of people who have private insurance policies where abortion is completely carved out. Or where they have a very high deductible or a very high co to where it doesn't even matter that they have insurance in the first place. Right, first I have a $4,000 deductible on my insurance. Right. <laughs> right, and the average cost for an abortion is between four and $500. So literally you have no coverage. Right. Right, so um, this bill would ensure that um, regardless of your, your healthcare policy, you could access this, you will have the coverage that you need and it will cover the care that you seek without any... Um, out-of-pocket costs or co-pays that could be um, burdensome and and that do cause people to actually have to rely on um, like charitable funds like the abortion, uh, New Jersey Abortion Access Fund um, to be able to afford their services. But the second piece of that um, is also looking at people who don't have any traditional path toward health insurance at all. Um, and so it addresses, um, abortion and contraception coverage for our undocumented community members in New Jersey. Um, Right now we have a small bucket of money um, called the New Jersey Supplemental Prenatal Program um, that is meant to provide coverage for some prenatal care services. um, And it does run out of money very quickly, like within the first quarter of the year. And so what we would like this bill ultimately to do is to, administer a program with enough resources to cover those prenatal care services that folks need for the full year, but also ensure that those same people have access both to contraception methods and to abortion care if they choose it, right? Because this kind of purposeful withholding of services or funding for one type of reproductive health and not another um, can influence decision making um, for people who don't have a ton of of resources and is ultimately paramount to reproductive coercion from the state. And so if we want to really live into our values of affirming that everyone has the right to make these decisions, we also need to make sure that they're well resourced to do so. So, so yeah, it sounds like a really good bill. Yeah. It sounds like it's got some <laughs>
1: deep stuff in it that really will help people for
0: sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then we see, we do, we see this bill as a vehicle to um, really remove obstacles. Um, and so we, we also are, feel you know, strongly um, feel that this bill should not um, impose any new obstacles or new restrictions to abortion. In fact, it, it will um, eliminate some old laws that are still on the books that, Um, You know, have been struck down by our state courts that could potentially be used, um, you know, or misused to criminalize folks, as well as um, some regulations that don't improve um, patient outcomes. They just serve to make um, provision of care very burdensome and, and limit the number of sites throughout the state where people can access care.
1: So if people want to get involved, you told us where we could sign up to get information. If people wanted to donate to um, the abortion fund, for example, um, how could they do
0: that? Where do they do that? Yeah. So um, the only independent freestanding abortion fund in New Jersey is New Jersey Abortion Access Fund. Um, and so you can visit them at njaf.org, which is N-J-A-A-F.org. And I'll also say that um, you know, the Cherry Hill Women's Center is continuing to provide care through, through this pandemic and also working to help champion this legislation, which has resulted in us needing to um, kind of exist in a state of increased vigilance. Um, and so we are always in need of um, supportive volunteers um, to help walk people into the clinic. Um, and you can sign up with us at www thewomenscenters.com slash take dash action. And to learn more about volunteering, and you can also make a non-tax deductible donation directly to the clinic um, if you'd be interested or sign up for our email list as well um, to keep up to date on what's going on with us.
1: You guys do great work there. And thank you so thank much you. for joining me. I always enjoy learning what's going on with reproductive healthcare <laughs> from you. It's always really educational. Thanks, Heather. To my listeners, thank you so much for joining us here today. We appreciate you more than you can know. We would not be here if it was not for the support of you guys. So I appreciate everything that you do when you share our posts around, when you like things, if you rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, all that really helps to get these important messages out there. And finally, I have to ask for your monetary support. I'm literally just sitting in a tiny little bedroom in my house right now. (laughs) you know, recording this and I'm paying kind of for everything out of pocket. So if at all possible, if you could go on to my website, click on that donate tab, you can support me on Patreon with a monthly donation or through PayPal. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us here today. The future is yours to create, go out there and create it.